Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of Industry Standard. This podcast is being recorded early in the morning for us uh, at the crack of 10 a.m. The producers here, you can see the sleepies in their eyes. Actually, though, Max, uh, our main guy who does the camera and stuff, is actually, you can tell it's early in the morning and you can tell we're ready to go because Max is not yawning. Oftentimes when I do the podcast and I'm in this amazing rant that I feel like I'm in the zone, I'll look over to Max and Max will be yawning like the cowardly lion in the Wizard of Oz. It's very frightening. Uh, it really inspires you that lets you know that you're doing the right thing here on these podcasts. Uh, uh, and, and of course, you know, uh, Sarah's diligently on her emails all the time. So you don't have, actually have any idea whether she's she's uh, uh she's uh feeling good about it or not and ari is on his headphones just looking into his computer and you have no idea what he's watching he could be watching you porn for all you know and you have no idea what's happening because sarah seems amused at the time when he's on it so <laughs> but anyway um again uh it's been great this is wonderful you guys are wonderful uh we couldn't uh, do this without you and uh we're very very grateful that you're liking it, you're enjoying it, that it's been inspiring, that it helps you in business and gives you a little entertainment and helps your lives get to the next level. And every guest that comes here, even from the very first guest like Doug Herzog that I ever had, 
he'll reach out to me occasionally and say, Barry, I don't know what it is about this podcast, but I hear from people every single week that they listen to it. They got something out of it. They enjoyed it. And that, that means the world to me. Um, and upcoming podcasts that we're working on, just so you should know, um, I'm working on Ted Harbert, who's the uh, chairman of NBC Universal, working out a date for him. Whitney Cummings as well, Chris Rock, and Mark Marin should be upcoming uh, in the early summer as well as Adam Carolla. So we got some great stuff coming up, talking about their journeys. And speaking of journeys, uh, I often like to do a cold open that sort of is like a six degrees of separation to my guest, who I am extremely excited to be uh, near and next to, David Salzman. This guy is, if you were to look at what I'm looking at as far as the bio of what this guy's done, it literally is like Ulysses. It's incredible. I don't even know how we're going to get through this. This is like literally could be a seven part podcast, but hopefully we'll just get to the important things. And one of the things that relates to him that I want to tell you a story is how amazing the world works in terms of bad things that happen to you and good things that happen to you. And how sometimes things are going on that you feel are insurmountable. And at the time, you feel like there's no way that you can overcome them. And I know everybody in the world has this feeling at times where something bad happens. And then you're like, oh, God. And then another bad thing happens. And another one. And another one. And, and there comes a point in time where you look up to the heavens and you say, what the fuck you guys you're killing me is he they say that they don't give you don't give me anything that i can't handle but this is too much and but eventually uh in the words of somebody who david salzman and i know very well peter engel he once told me something that i'll i'll never forget he said someday today will be a long time ago and that always stuck with me and for the purposes of this podcast just to get personal which i have done a few times but i think it's important uh, i came here with my kids today um i never come to the office for a podcast with my kids but we improvised we came it's a it's a holiday half day and uh having a little fun and as i looked at them as i was getting out of the car i was reminded that early on in my life i suffered a personal setback where uh, as many of you know i lost my first wife she passed away and i thought at a time when i was in bed in the fetal position thinking am i ever going to do anything is anything going to happen uh how how can anything positive come of this and then something so horrible as that and you realize years later down the line when you look in the eyes of your children that there's a reason why everything happens as horrible or as positive as it happens it is that's the way it is and i wouldn't have these children if that horrible thing hadn't happened and i'm grateful that i have the kids i'm not grateful for the tragedy but i'm grateful for the result of it 
And so in a professional sense, there's two guys that I knew very, very well named Jordan Peel and Keegan Michael Key. And these two guys were incredibly talented. Um, I knew Keegan. I loved what he did. I actually met with him to represent him, and I, I loved him as a person. So sweet, so wonderful, so first class. And he met with a number of different managers, and I didn't end up working with him, which was one of the probably the the greatest uh, disappointments in terms of trying to work and sign somebody because I really loved him as a person. And there was Jordan Peele, who was a guy who I didn't meet until he was a cast member on Mad TV. And both of these guys experienced unique situations that you should know. There was a show that I was working on. I wasn't producing, but I was working, you know, to help an artist of mine get the opportunity with his talent. And that was a show called Gary Unmarried, which Jay Moore was the lead in. And one of the guys in the cast that got the gig was a really talented comedian actor named Al Madrigal. And Al... um did the first season and after the first season as sometimes happens in sitcoms and shows you get replaced you're fired and they decide they want to go in another direction it's a horrible thing that can happen to an artist but for the sake of the story i'm not going to talk as much about al madrigal i'll let you guys google al madrigal and you'll see how great al madrigal is doing after he got his ass handed to him on Gary Unmarried. So he's doing amazingly well, talented, brilliant. But we're just going to talk about the guy who replaced him because of that bad thing that happened. And that was Keegan-Michael Key. And Keegan got the chance to be on Gary Unmarried. And for some reason, the chemistry with him and Jay and on the show, he really shined. And he really, really was really strong on the show. Funny. And then he did a commercial. I believe it was a Hertz commercial or some kind of car commercial where it was just incredibly funny during the season. And he had the commercial running and he had that running. And his stock was rising and people were realizing that he was really great. And he was on a show where he was making significant money because when you're on a sitcom... It's incredible the money you make. Even in the, like the lowest paid people on a sitcom would probably make $15,000 an episode. So you have to figure that Keegan was making for that season at least $300,000, maybe 400000 Could even be grossing $500,000. And with the commercial, doing really well. And that really gets you going psychologically that you're doing well and everything's going well. And the show was doing, it wasn't doing great, but it was doing, well, it was doing like about 8 million people a week, which is, you know, certainly was in the 50s, 40s, and 50s. It was in its second season. And looked like things were going to go well with it. And then the word came down, canceled. Keegan-Michael Key, without a job. Then there was another young man that we talked about earlier, Jordan Peele. On Mad TV, working on a job every week, 
feeling great about the work he was doing, getting in great sketches, doing great characters, funny, working at least 20, 22 episodes a season, not making as much as a sitcom star, but making significant money for a guy who was working in a uh, sketch troupe or wherever he was working or whatever kind of improv he was doing. Pretty, pretty big move up. And his stock was rising on the show. And he was doing really, really well. And he was feeling great about it. He was becoming one of the stars of the show. The show was successful. It was on 14 seasons. Who would ever think that the show would get the word that they were canceled? Kevin Riley came in as the president of Fox, wanted to shake things up, canceled the show. They only had four episodes left, I believe, to uh, finish. Kind of a depressing time. But then uh, Jordan found out that Lorne Michaels was taking submissions for cast members, was looking for a new African-American cast member. He submitted his uh, link and his DVD for his characters. Wouldn't you know it? Lauren Michaels, Marcy Klein, Lindsay Shookus, the team there at Saturday Night Live, they call, and they want Jordan to test. Unbelievable. Mad TV just gets canceled. He's only got four episodes left, and now he's being offered a test. He has a chance. He tests. He gets the call. He gets Saturday Night Live. The greatest moment in almost anybody's life, especially after they've experienced Mad TV. I mean, you get to experience Mad TV and then you get to do another show that's iconic. It's like literally like you've won the lottery. Exciting times. Um, so representatives go back to Mad TV. David Salzman say we got Saturday Night Live. Mad TV, production company, says, hey, we got four more episodes to do. Uh, we've invested in you. We have money in the show. You're one of our stars. We got four more episodes. Finish the four more episodes. And we're all excited for you to do Saturday Night Live. Unfortunately, as Damon Wayans says, homie, don't play that way. Lorne Michaels, don't play that way. And Lorne Michaels wants things the way Lorne Michaels wants them. And he's over 35 years or 40 years. If you do a contract for Saturday Live, doesn't matter if you have the greatest lawyer in the world or Ed's lawyer. There is nothing that changes in the contract except your name, your social security number, and your address. And if you don't deliver for him the way he wants it delivered, he moves on to the next person. And Jordan Peele lost Saturday Night Live. Went on to fulfill the four episodes, and here he was without a job. Keegan-Michael Key without a job. Seemed like tough times. But then two guys got together, were friends, hooked up. Started putting some things together, some ideas on paper, started meeting, put together the ideas for a show called Key and Peel, and they pitched it around town. And believe it or not, P 
people passed. But there was one network that didn't pass at Comedy Central. And now Key and Peel is one of their highest rated shows. And unbelievably, Key and Peel's production office is right next to David Salzman's, who was the guy who was the founder and of Mad TV. And now they're about to, if they haven't already, gotten a movie deal where they're going to resurrect the Police Academy franchise together. And they're poised to be two of the biggest stars in our business. So remember, someday, today, will be a long time ago. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, cats. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know about this one guy who kept reaching out to me over and over again, persistent. His name was Michael Purcell. And he came to LA and met with me and he told me 10 years ago he created a company called Global Cash Card where he figured out a way to take payroll, make it paperless for companies of any size, and then allow for somebody's weekly salary to be instantly loaded anytime, anywhere onto their own personal Visa payroll card for free. So I did some research and found that it cost around $3 for every paycheck to be cut by a firm. So that means if you're a medium or large-sized company, you have like a 1,000 checks you're writing every week, you could save $12,000 a month or over $135,000 a year. So do yourself a favor. Go to globalcashcard.com, 
schedule live demo, speak to Michael Purcell, see how easy it is to start saving big money today, and trust me, you'll be glad you did. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with our crew here eating sandwiches that are breakfast related, having fun. My guest today, David Salzman, I'm so excited about it. There are so many things that I can say about this man in the introduction. I'm going to try not to make it like totally too long, but I just will give you the, the, the breadth and the wealth of, of, of everything that this guy's been involved with. It's incredible. So I'll try to give you the bullet points as I can. Uh, David has earned a reputation throughout his career for innovation and leadership. He successfully started up four companies, two magazines, 12 television stations, and has been involved in more than 15 to 20,000 hours of TV productions. Plus, has had three significant turnarounds with companies as their CEO or co-CEO. Going into the television area, he co-founded Telepictures, which if you don't know what Telepictures is, when you tune in Ellen every day, that's all you need to know. They create great syndicated programming like Ellen, and if you look them up, a million other shows. He was running all West Coast activities and headed up development and production and creative fairs, overseeing operations of what is now the Sony lot, the TV station group and the video center and post-production facility he founded. Prior to Telepictures, he managed major market TV stations for Westinghouse and was the CEO, uh, uh, was the CEO of Group W Productions, leading the first-run programming company in the U.S., winning over 100 awards, including multiple Emmy Awards. In 1985, when Lorimar and Telepictures merger occurred, he took over as the studio chief for all television. He created, developed, and or supervised more than 200 network and syndicated TV series, specials, movies, and miniseries, including Dallas, Knott's Landing, Falcon Crest, Full House, ALF, the People's Court and Love Connection. As president of Lorimar Telepictures, he guided the company to position of U.S.'s leading supplier of TV content for five consecutive years. When Time Warner acquired Lorimar Telepictures in 1989, Salzman was asked to sign a 10-year key man agreement. Look it up, key man agreement. It's an amazing clause. And then for two more years, he led Lorimar Telepictures to the number one position in TV. <coughs> he returned to his roots as an Emmy-winning producer and writer uh, in successful series and specials after that for CBS, ABC, NBC, and HBO. He created the Jenny Jones talk show, which was a driving force for many of those kind of talk shows in the future. That show, if you don't remember, only ran for 12 years. Two years later, he created with 
a guy who was just as iconic as him in the music business, Quincy Jones. And it became Quincy Jones David Salzman Entertainment, which was a multifaceted joint venture funded by Time Warner Entertainment. QDE, as he called it, uh, emerged as an operation that developed network and print magazines and movies and all sorts of media. It was incredible. Uh, in 93, uh, he uh, produced with Quincy the People's Celebration at the Lincoln Memorial as President Clinton's first official inaug inaugural event, which featured over 650 performers before a live in-person audience of a half a million. And it only got a rating of 40 million viewers. Oh, what a horrible gig that must have been. We can't even get four million. This guy has executive produced and written on shows. And like I said, Mad TV, 14 years, the rerun show, NBC, In the House, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Dark Justice, The History of Rock and Roll. Um, he's also co-produced three films, Steel, Passing Glory, and the Oscar-nominated short film, Vacuums as well as Broadway, the Tony Award-winning Broadway shows You're in Town, the musical Sideman, and Neil Simon's The Dinner Party, Legally Blonde, and Budley. I don't know what else to say about this guy. He's won so many different awards, including the Emmy, the American Academy of Achievement Gold Plate Award, the HELP Group's Humanitarian Award, the Tree of Life Award from the Jewish National Fund, the Christopher Award, the ACE Award, and the Lifetime Achievement Award. Um, it's just incredible. Uh, please welcome my guest today, unbelievable, David Salzman. Thank you very much. Can you believe you've done so much stuff when you hear all that? I've never done an introduction that lasted as long as an episode. Wow. It's humbling, I'll tell you that. Thank you. You're welcome. As I like to do, I normally like to start off at the beginning, way, way back for you because you're, what, 40? I'm uh, late 40s. <laughs> are you allowed to say how old you are? Are you allowed to say how old you are? Is that bad for this I business? Can't, I can't say. How, right. I'm, I'm not allowed. He's not allowed to say how old he is. Suffice to say, uh, he's friends with Peter Engel. So that must mean something. I don't know how old Peter is, but uh, we'll, we'll figure that out. But anyway. I'm several years younger than Peter. <laughs> okay. Well, that's a good. However, we know how Peter lives. He's whatever he is going on 15 or 20. So I know Peter Engel is like, he's an inspiration of, of many sorts. He's an inspiration of many sorts because he literally, <coughs> the oldest woman that Peter Engel dates is probably under 30. So that's, that's nice to know that I have hope. He's the um, white Quincy Jones. I did. A, he's the white Quincy Jones. When it comes to that, that's right. Quincy's, Quincy, Quincy's ladies are a little younger than that, but he's the most amazing uh, Lothario I've ever met. Mr. Jones. But Peter's up there. Lothario. That's a great word. I love that. So let's start way back in the beginning. Tell me where you were when, you know, the first things of uh, ideas of being in the entertainment business came to you. Where did you grow up? Were you, or what kind of atmosphere were you living in, the family life? And what happened that made you realize you wanted to be in the business? Well, I'm born and bred in Brooklyn, New York where at one point, one out of six people 
in America either were born or lived in Brooklyn at one time. I don't know if it's still statistically quite that high, so it's not that unusual. Uh, it was a great time to grow up. I had a terrific family, two parents uh, who were married, ended up being married for over 60 years. My mother's still alive. Is almost going to be 99 shortly. So wow. My dad lived till 93. Now, you've been married uh, a long time too, right? Yeah, I've been married. I married my wife when she was 20 years old. And I was a year or two more than that. And we've been married over 40 years. So, Wow. You notice how he said we've been married over 40 years to keep his age anonymous. Exactly. Well, I know how you think. <laughs> I do. He's I... a chess player. He's much smarter than me, so I have to be real, really Let's, careful. Yeah, I'm much smarter than you. I'm sitting doing a podcast. You've run 17 billion companies, <laughs> made over $6 billion for those companies, and I'm well, sitting actually, here. the most interesting things are, are sort of what's going on now, but we'll get to that later. So the beginning was Brooklyn, uh, like a lot of people who may be listening to this, uh, you know, grew up poor but didn't know it. Uh, rich in every other way except monetarily. Both my father and mother were terrific positive influences, but probably a great influence on me were my maternal, my mother's parents who lived around the corner. And my grandfather was one of those people who came from Odessa and uh, was turned... Odessa uh, in the former Soviet Union? Yep. Ukraine, you know, been in the news lately. And he was, uh, he, he, he was a street urchin. You know, his dad died... Uh, his mother remarried. The new guy didn't want him. They literally threw him out on the streets. And he grew up on the streets, you know, when he was, I don't know, seven, eight years old. And, you know, so I was very close with my grandfather, who was a a builder of homes, a wallpaper hanger, painter, and uh, just a crazy guy, like a champion pole, pole sitter and things of that sort. And, uh, you know, and he told me from a very young age, as I would go and assist him on these jobs, that, you know, there are no, no shortcuts in life. Uh, it's all about hard work. And uh, you're, you're lucky to not be born with some of the things that other people are born with. Uh, material gifts, because you'll appreciate everything. But no one, no one is ever going to give you anything. No one, the, no one knocks on your door as if it's a door of opportunity. It, it all comes from you. So, you know, that, those were lessons that were, you know, helpful. So from the time I was 10, 11, 12, I was always, you know, working, whether it was selling lemonade and comic books or delivering prescriptions for the, the pharmacy on the corner and groceries and then working at a kosher butcher shop. I worked at the butcher shop that Neil Diamond talks about in Brooklyn Roads called Hollander's Butcher Shop on Church Avenue in Brooklyn. You know, when he, the song when he's yeah. the, the apartment over the, the butcher shop. So I'll tell you a quick thing about Neil Diamond. So I was friendly with his brother, Harvey Diamond, who's no longer with us. Neil's a few years older than me. Very shy, almost asocial guy as he grew up. His mother, Rose, my mother's name is Rose too, was like movie star beautiful. Uh, and his dad... Akiba, who everybody called Kivi, uh, was uh, came from a line of rabbis and and cantors, uh, but was also a dreamer. And he looked like uh, Jose Greco, and he had this little mustache. And they actually were like professional flamenco dancers. So Neil's mom Rose taught me how to dance for my own bar mitzvah. But uh, and this leads back to me. But. This butcher shop, above it, there was this family that lived in an apartment. You know, Brooklyn, you've got the store, and then you have what's now called mixed use. You have these apartments right above it. And the Ur gangs, 
Mark Ergang, who was my age, who's a good friend of mine, uh, they were first cousins of the Diamonds who lived around the corner on Westminster Road, and I lived on Stratford Road. And uh, although I grew up on, on, on Westminster, and, and what happened was that uh, in one of Neil's dad's get-rich schemes that didn't work, uh, they had no money to even literally pay the rent. And the rents in those days were like about $50 a month for an apartment, maybe even less in the building that he lived lived in. So they had to move in with the Urgangs and share rooms. You know, like I've never had a room of my own in my entire life. At growing up with my brother in the same room, getting married at a, at, at a young age, when I was in grad school, you know, shared a room with somebody, you know, that type of thing. And so Neil came from that, you know, that world as as well and overcame in, in amazing ways the adversity. The adversity that was the, 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 the old cliche that uh, a problem isn't a problem if you, if you can turn it into an opportunity. I had polio when I was eight and nine years old. I was, you know, grew, in Brooklyn, you know, you grew up as an athlete. You know, you, you literally played ball even if it was snowing outside. You know, you just, and I grew up a half a block from a place called the Parade Grounds, which is next to Prospect Park, which those of us in Brooklyn learned uh, was, was Frederick Olmsted, the guy who did Grant Park and Central Park, was his feeling that Prospect Park was his greatest achievement. Because in Brooklyn, you know, you're treated in a second-class way if you're in the outer boroughs, not a Manhattanite, you know, so you... You want some civic pride. So I grew up a half a block from this place. So I grew up as a baseball player, among other things. I played with Rico Petroselli, who was a big bonus baby. 1975 World Series yeah. he played in the I even played Estremsky against Joe Torre, who was, you know, I was 13 and he was like 19 or something. So you played against Joe Torre. Yeah, well, we were, played for the same team called the Cadets that that um, that Rico and others played for. But, you know, so I grew up in that in that neighborhood and so for me to get polio, all of a sudden, you know, I'm getting under a fly ball and I can't put my hands together and, you know, my friends are yelling at me, what's wrong with you? I've never known that people overcame that, especially that many years ago. Yeah. How did you overcome that? Well, I, 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 well it took a year of abuse because I went from being, you know, like one of the best athletes in the neighborhood to, you know, to a joke and we couldn't figure out what it was. And I was misdiagnosed by more than 10 doctors. Uh, and kids are very cruel. Yeah, they're very cruel. And, uh, you know, you get down on yourself as well. But I was, you know, was most, the most of them said, he, he's just a nervous kid. You know, he's, he's got these nervous twitches and his eyes are blinking. And it was, it was tough. So we eventually got a diagnosis after a year, literally a year of going to doctors, which was tough on my parents because you had a, you know, there wasn't really the medical insurance that we have these days before Obamacare and now with Obamacare. So, I mean, you know, just to go to see a bunch of doctors, you know, when you don't have a lot of money was difficult for my family, though I didn't realize it. In any event, we found out, I went to this hospital in Brooklyn, the hospital for uh, chronic diseases and crippling diseases, and I was in therapy. I would go in the iron lung every week. So I did that for about four years. And, you know, it, where it worked out for me in many ways I was never an inpatient, though. I was always, you know, got to go home, was that, uh, first of all, I had to develop everything with the left hand, so I became ambidextrous. I could throw with my left hand. I could shoot. I ended up being on the, the city championship basketball team with Billy Cunningham and nine black guys, so I, be, you know, I overcame <laughs> it. I became a halfway decent athlete again. But, um, you know, it, 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 it's a difficult thing, but when you overcome that challenge, 
uh, you, you really believe that, you know, there's nothing you can't do. And uh, in your career, when someone says in our business, the business of rejection, you know, says no way, that is the worst idea and the worst pitch I think I've, I've heard this year, you know, you, you, uh, you suck it up, you make some adjustments, you go to the next meeting and you sell the show, you know, so it, 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 it really gives you strength and character to use use a cliche when you can overcome those things. And when you see these things, especially, you know, you're a father, I'm a father and you see you with all the luck that we both had in our career and the rewards that we have had and continue to have. And you see people with uh, down syndrome, kids, uh, autism spectrum, uh, whatever it may be. That's why every board that I'm on is either a university or a charitable group. I try to not, I turn down, one or two corporate boards a year in our industry because I'm doing that 60 or 80 hours a week. That's enough. You know what I mean? You, you do have to give back, especially if you came from nowhere. So, uh, you know, it all, it all worked out great. And I truly believe when I sit across from you that the reason why you do most things is to give back. I know that in business you do things to help support your family, put food on the table, have security for your children and grandchildren. But I've always felt that uh, you are a guy who's always wanted to give back. And I've always, every Christmas card I've ever gotten from you uh, has always had uh, a charity on it. And um, I feel that way about you. So tell me, what was the first idea that you had after all this adversity that, hey, I might want to be in entertainment? Were there television shows you watched, movies that inspired you? What happened? Well, uh in the era that I grew up in, which of course obviously includes television, I was in the, I, I guess in that first television generation, it was a big thing to go to the movies and I would go to the movies usually twice every weekend and there were double features. And as you know, they changed every week. So you could see four movies a week. And, uh, I had a, a pretty good memory. I think I've, you know, through college, I had a photographic memory. I now have a good memory, but somehow the photographic part is gone. So, I mean, I was really interested in that and acting and I was aware of, you know, like I would see movies. I remember when I saw a movie called A Face in the Crowd, which was a B feature with an unknown Lee Remick and, and Andy Griffith that is now a cult classic, you know, film. And it's on a lot of, it makes some top hundred film lists. And I would see that and, and like that more than the A feature and all my friends would like, are you kidding? You know, and this and that. So I guess I was getting downloaded for, for the industry without, without even knowing it. But I was in high school, editor of my high school newspaper. In college, I was editor of my college newspaper. So I was interested in journalism and writing and things of that sort, reviews, critical analysis, uh, you know, not just reporting the news. And, and so, um, you know, all of that stuff and, and, and always very interested in politics, uh, from a very young age, I mean, you know, in, in, in the fifties as a young kid watching the gavel to gavel coverage of that type of stuff interested me. And a confluence of that all really came together for me when I was in graduate school, which was in, in Detroit. I, I, the story of how I got to Detroit may, may interest you. I'll give you the brief version. So I had gotten into Columbia. I'd always wanted to, to go to Columbia, but we had no money. So I went to Brooklyn college, which was basically everybody's on scholarships, $50, a semester to go to Brooklyn College. You needed straight A's to get in. I got into Columbia before I got into Brooklyn, but with Brooklyn, I could, I could either walk to school, which was about two or three miles, or take a subway, 
and I got, I could still live at home and, you know, didn't have that money. Cause I'd worked in the summer, some summers in the Catskills and things like that, you know, cause you could make yourself a, a grand or two working like a slave, but that wasn't enough to put me through Columbia. So then I applied to grad schools and uh, I thought I was going to go in for journalism and I got into Columbia, which was, was, and still is considered one of the best. And I was accepted and I was going to go there. And, um, just to show you, you know, serendipity, I'm one of the luckiest people I've ever met, at least in our industry. So it's, it's the old Harvard thing of lucky smart. Would you rather be lucky or smart? Always choose lucky. <laughs> and, uh, I was very lucky. So in college, I went to a convention around the time I graduated in June at, at Ohio state. I'd never been West of like Philadelphia in my life, you know? So I went with a couple of my professors and we drove there and I ended up in an all night card game. Uh, and uh, I met these guys from a place called Wayne State University in Detroit, which is a state university. It's actually quite a good, quite a good school. I'm on the board of Wayne State right now. But, um, you know, so I'm in this thing and I and, you know, after you're playing cards for six, eight hours and everybody around you is drunk. Uh, and you've had a couple, a couple of boilermakers, you know, you're, you're talking and then, and it gets very familiar, very fast. And it's like, so what are you doing? Do you work? Are you in school? And this, that, and the other thing. And, and so when I told them I was going to go to Columbia and, uh, which I thought would have maybe been impressive to them, <clears throat> they, they pissed all over it and told me what an idiot I am because, you know, that this is theoretical education. You know, when am I going to really learn something about the business? And, and newspapers are dead and dying and soon going to be dead, but it's all about this relatively new medium television. And, uh, and I had worked in television at Brooklyn college. We had a very advanced television studio, probably the newest, the newest one at the time in the whole country. So they said, look, we'll, we, what if we arranged a scholarship for you? Would you, would you give up Columbia and, and go to Wayne State? You know? <laughs> so um, I ended up doing that, you know, and uh, much to my own surprise, my parents were in shock. I had a scholarship to, uh, to, to, to Columbia, too, you know, that would have <clears throat> paid the tuition and I would have just done the subway. So you gave up the Ivy League school for Wayne State. Yeah, two times. But your original message was there are no shortcuts, work hard, and you'll get where you need to go. So you took no shortcuts in school. You worked hard because you don't get into Columbia by not working hard. So you do everything in your power to get the kind of grades to get you into Columbia twice okay you don't need those kind of grades to get into brooklyn college or wayne state you could have coasted through high school and gotten to wayne state or brooklyn college or at least not coasted but you could have gotten b's so explain to our audience here you did you worked your ass off to get to the point where you go to columbia and then you don't go why uh i'm a gut guy you know it, it just felt right to me uh, I had gotten, by the way, I had worked some summers for the New York Times when I was at Brooklyn College. Uh, and I got, then got a job uh, in the, what turned out to be the last year of its existence at the New York Herald Tribune, which was considered the second best newspaper in America to the New York Times. It was a great newspaper. So the first, the first week I'm, I'm, I'm there starting to work, I've now graduated and I'm thinking maybe I'll 
push off Columbia for no, another another year. Uh, I, I get taken to lunch by these two women who uh, took a sort of maternal interest in me. One was Judith Christ, who became a big film critic, but was a junior writer at that time. And a woman by the name of Terry Ferrer, who was the education editor of the New York Herald Tribune and was on Meet the Press probably six, eight times a year. She's big in her field. They took me to lunch and I went to a fancy restaurant, you know, and I'm feeling like a million bucks. I'm working for the Herald Tribune. And these people are taking me out and they just beat the crap out of me. Told me <laughs> what an idiot I am, you know, that if I, I won't have a job in a year, go to school, but it's all television. You know, it's like, Go West, young man, Horace, Horace Greeley. Go to, you know, television and, and all that stuff. So I end up, that's when I ended up deciding, do you still, were you kidding that night? Do you remember, you know, the drunk, the drunk all night card game and the scholarship to Wayne State? I think I might be interested. And it's like, you would? <laughs> it's like, you know, do we want to, it's Groucho Marx. Do you want to ever be in a club that would accept you as a member? You know, so. <laughs> Uh, I went there and, uh, it was the, it was the most amazing, uh, period of good luck that anybody could ever have in their career. When I went to Detroit, I'd never been on an airplane before. As I said, I never was West of, uh, of Philadelphia and I go to Detroit and, uh, everything I do, you know, sort of the Lord shines upon me, turn, you know, turns the gold. Other than the fact that I developed an ulcer in my uh, first three months there and lost 40 pounds, but that's, you know, I, it's, I had no clothes, so it didn't matter. God, I wish I could develop an ulcer right now. Yeah, I could use one too. I could, I could, uh, I, I could, well, maybe not 40 pounds, but maybe 20. So in any event, so I'm, I'm in Detroit and that's really where that was really the turning point. So tell us all about, tell us all about the luck that happened one thing after another, after the ulcer. Well, I started uh, at Wayne State. I was teaching these classes, and I started this sort of student teaching gig. And one of the reasons I went to Wayne State is that Wayne State literally controlled and ran the PBS station in Detroit. Remember, Detroit, in, in, this is the late 60s, Detroit is, is then the fifth largest city in the United States and you know, seemingly in great economic shape. So it's a major city. You know, there's New York and then there's sort of everything else at that point in time. So I go there. I put this show on the air. It wins a local Emmy against, you know, all the all the local shows. And it's kind of a local uh, tonight show. Desk and couch talk variety. I get a guy who's a student at the university. He's one of the big 50 watt DJs in town. Guy by the name of Big Ed Bush. And, you know, we're in Detroit where it's snowing in Michigan today as we speak. Mm -hmm. Uh, and he gets stuck from his gig in, in, uh, Windsor, Canada, which is sort of like Brooklyn is to Manhattan. You take a bridge and it's right there. And, uh, it's a live show. What, you know, what are we going to do? It's, you know, it's a, it's a live show. We had Joan Rivers on that show, Phil Foster, uh, and, uh, and fat Jackie Leonard. Jackie who Leonard, was, one of who, the greatest comedians of our yeah, and the and the the you know the the father of insult comedy literally taught Don Rickles everything he knows, which Don has been gracious enough to to acknowledge. So I I did the show, and you hosted the I show. I had to host the show. I mean, what else? I'm the only guy, and it's the first this time you're on camera. It's the first time I'm on camera. How did that so go? It went pretty well. <laughs> it 
we had you know an opening monologue you know on the whole thing it, did it you have teleprompter back well. then or cue cards no w w we had cue cards but i you know did it totally off the cuff there was no time i mean the guys he's and it's remember, an no there are no cell phones like where is ed bush how do we know he's stuck you know in so you didn't even camp, know where he in, was you snowed just in on a bit you know it's like ed bush is not here so he didn't even re he didn't even reach you guys no, no, it's, you know, it, it's, it's go. And so you uh, knew you it. were going on like a half hour beforehand, maybe. And you, even though up to the moment, you didn't know. I, I was praying on my knees that he would show up. But and, you did, but you did well. And your first guest was Joan Rivers. And then, uh, next was the, uh, who was the next, uh, well, Joan Rivers, Jackie Leonard, Phil Foster, who Phil was Foster. on Laverne and Shirley in later years, but it was pretty so you that's know, amazing. Do you still have the tape of that performance? Uh, no, I have I have photos that are proof. Got it. Uh, so in any event, that th without our knowing it, that that got picked up uh, as the th that is the episode that won the Emmy for the best local show. Not not educational or PBS show for the you know all of Detroit. So what you're so program. what you're saying is that through a twist again of fate where a guy has a bad situation and he can't get to the gig, a gig with all these great talent on it, which was going to be a great opportunity for him. That guy doesn't get the opportunity. You go in and on your first television appearance in the history of your life, <laughs> you win an Emmy award. Well, I had hair in those days. So I, was much, <laughs> I was much more likable than I am right now. So David, where do you go from there? You won an Emmy your first. Well, I mean, I was, I was putting 40,000 miles on my car and working a full-time job and, and full-time student and all that other stuff. So there's, there's no time to even, you know, take a deep breath or pat yourself on the back. But that was, you know, it's one of those fortuitous situations that I, that I mentioned. My, Deepak Chopra later on, as we got to know each other many years later, told, you know, explained the concept of meaningful coincidence. But Detroit was a place of meaningful coincidences and that that's one of really one of several i'll give you one other example uh i grew up loving louis armstrong and ella fitzgerald so i would sneak into this nightclub in manhattan which my parents to this day didn't know uh because i never even looked my age i was you know wasn't shaving till i got to graduate school so this is i'm underage and i would go to basin street east which had a house band that was conducted by a guy named Quincy Jones, strangely enough. And on Sunday nights, people would jam. And I've always liked, you know, what was in those, those days, you know, called black music. So I would go to see, I saw Ella and, 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 and Louis Armstrong together. How many Caucasian people would show up to these nights with the all black, um, musical arrangements. Well, Basin Street East, I would say the crowd was at least half white. There was a place in Brooklyn in Bedford-Stuyvesant that I also frequented called Town Hill. Mm -hmm. And there was one in Detroit called 20 Grand where there were times I might have been the only white guy in those places. It's fascinating that you said, because I really want, I, I had heard about it being a mixed place uh, during that time of let's face it, really, really deep-seated racism. And even before the the horribleness of what happened in the 60s mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff or whatever, that music transcended peace and calm and tranquility that Quincy Jones was the band leader of. Yeah. Well, he was, he was an amazing guy. I... I I went backstage 
to get the autographs of these people. I'm a big autograph collector. I, I had everybody on the Brooklyn Dodgers and the 50s up until they left and knew all those guys, Jackie Robinson, Roy Campanella, Gil Hodges, et cetera, you know, because there were these little guys you'd ride there on your bike and you'd get their autographs, still have them, including the baseball cards from the different years, which you would you would probably want to see one time. So um, anyway, with with that background, Louis Armstrong, I've just gotten to Detroit. Louis Armstrong's going to play at University of Detroit on a Saturday night. And, you know, when you grow up in Brooklyn – uh, you know, you have to have chutzpah if you're going to just survive to get, get home without getting, getting beaten up or whatever, let alone to succeed in school or business. So I contacted uh, somehow, remember, I knew, knew nobody in the business, Louis Armstrong's people. And I said, here's who I am. I'd been doing radio then, so I had the more, you know, this more sonorous, stentorian delivery. So I sounded a little bit older than I was. And uh, I said, I want, to, I want to interview him. They said, well, do you know him? And I said, well, do I know him? You know, I saw him on such and such a day, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, bullshitted my way through it a little bit. So fast forward and I'm backstage with Louis Armstrong. I have pictures of this too. You'd, you'd probably get a kick out of it with my sack tape recorder, which was the state of the art in those days. And I record this interview with him and it goes on and on. And, you know, we really connected myself. He was very impressed that I knew what I knew and he was just great, very gracious. And, you know, I saw the concert and everything. Then, then a week later, I'm getting the newspaper. The, there were two newspapers, Detroit News, Detroit Free Press. I get the Sunday paper and the, in, in the Free Press, which is a Knight Ritter, very high, high end newspaper, uh, their Sunday sections called Detroit Magazine. And on the cover is Louis Armstrong and, it, and it's like exclusive interview with Louis Armstrong. It's the interview that I had done, Q&A style, like, like um, Playboy magazine, you know, Q&A. How was that and, possible? But not credited to me. Well, what happened was some guy at University of Detroit also recorded it, transcribed it, edited it, and sold it to, 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 to them. <laughs> So I, so this is, here's, you know, this, we didn't rehearse this, your theme of, you know, turning adversity into opportunity. So I'm furious and, uh, it's Sunday. I call the Detroit free press. Of course, nobody's there. And they'd say, well, you want to call this guy either Mort Persky or Arnold Rosenfeld, the editor or the assistant editor, uh, starting at, you know, eight, eight o'clock on Monday morning. And you'll probably reach them. So I call these guys and I, do this, you know, on, on a single breath, you know, five minute rant of what an unscrupulous bunch of people and this, that, and the other thing. And then when I run out of breath, they say, can we talk now? You know, and they invited me down. I went down that afternoon and they said, can you prove that you did this interview? I said, play the, you know, play, play the, uh, the audio tape. And they say, that, that's fantastic. Do you think you could do more of these? <laughs> I said, well, I think I could, but I, why would I want to do it for a bunch of, you know, bastards like you guys? They said, no, no, we'll pay you. We normally pay $50, which is what they paid for an article in those days. We'll pay you a hundred bucks. And if you, and if you get a cover, we'll give you $200. That was a lot of money to me. I had no money. And did you say, Hey, uh, give me the 200 for this cover. No, I didn't. But they did send me a check for $50, All which right. was very nice, but they didn't tell me at that time. And uh, what happened was I ended up doing a bunch of uh, other interviews with people like Walter Ruther, the head of the UAW, Jimmy Hoffa, people like that, which led to me doing a Jimmy Hoffa Playboy 
thing. So, uh, you know, when I'm, you know, I'm in my twenties, I'm getting like these big gigs in Detroit that happens shortly thereafter. And I've done all these magazine pieces, including local people that you've never heard of, but who are big stars in Detroit, you know, for Detroit magazine. And I've got a little bit of a writing career and I'm teaching and I'm getting straight A's in graduate school. And, and I get a phone call from, um, from, from, a, from someone who says they're from Kaiser, which was a, in those days, a big aluminum company. And, and now is Kaiser Permanente. And they said that, you know, would I like to meet Edgar Kaiser of the Kaiser family, which I thought was a California company, which it was Oakland, California, but he lived in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is 40 miles from Detroit. It's where university of Michigan is. So I get to meet him and I get uh, a job offer, not from him, but from a guy you used to know, Barry Thurston, to to join Channel 50 as there as Kaiser is about to launch the first UHF independent television station in the history of America in Detroit, WKBD, Kaiser Broadcasting Detroit. So I was one of the original pioneer people there. And for those of you who don't remember or know, uh, a television uh, when we were growing up had VHF channels, which was channel 2 through 13, Correct. which was a top dial. And the bottom dial was UHF, which went from, I don't know. In those days, 14 to 83. 14 Ultra to high frequency. There's, we could talk for an hour on the irony of how now the UHF spectrum is worth much more than the v VHF as we enter this sort of digital spectrum age. But what happens is around the same time, there's this newspaper strike in Detroit. It was the long turned out to be the longest newspaper strike in the history of the United States. So we have this newspaper strike and... Uh, and I'd gotten, you know, I knew the people at the Free Press, knew people at, at Ford because it's one of the big local companies. Uh, I, I had called up William Clay Ford, because since you know I'm a big sports fan like you, who had just bought the Detroit Lions a couple of years before. I loved the Lions. First football game I ever, ever saw on television was the Thanksgiving game of, with, you know, with the Lions. So I was a big Lions fan, even though I was from, from New York. And I call him up and I said, you know, I've got a, I've got a proposition for you. I want to come down and meet with you or whoever it is. I went there and brought television to their training camp. This is in the days of Alex Karras. Joe Schmidt is now the coach, you know, the legendary players. I met Plimpton when Plimpton did Paper Lion and all that other stuff. So I know, I know this circle of people. There's the strike. I call up Ford and I say, I want to speak to Fred Friendly, who was the legendary former president of CBS News, the greatest president of TV news, in my opinion, ever. And thinking that he's working in Detroit, it's Ford Foundation, not being anywhere sophisticated enough to realize that, you know, he was in New York. Uh, but he happened to be visiting uh, Detroit that day. I get him on the phone. I said, I've got a great idea for you. Ford Foundation, public relations, major brownie points. Let's, let's put on Channel 56, which was the station we controlled. Channel 50 was was the Kaiser station. 56 was, was, uh, the, the WTVS, which was the, the, uh, Wayne state control station. I'm doing both at the same time. It's like, you know, dating, having two wives almost. So, um, I say to friendly, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put on a live newscast. We're going to do an electronic newspaper for the first time in history. You've made history. You wrote the history books for television journalism. This is the missing chapter. You've got to do this. He says, where are you? I said, well, I'm at Wayne State. And he says, well, I'm, I'm in downtown Detroit right now. Ford had a building there in this called the Renaissance Center. 
He said, uh, what are you doing at three? It was either three or three 30. And I said, I'll be here. So he comes up to see me, sees me and he feels like I'm like the son of the guy he spoke to. Cause he thinks I'm, you know, an older guy. Uh, we talk and he says, so what do you think this is going to cost? Nice. I, I make up a number. I had done nothing you know, pencil, but we had a big studio next door, which was, which we controlled, which was the original studio that the, the ABC O&O WXYZ had done soupy sales and a bunch of other shows. It's so it's a, it's a, it's a major commercial studio, a little bit old, but in good shape. So I take him over there and it just so happened that that day I had arranged interviews for the show that we were doing that were pre-tapes with Henry Mancini and with, with Dick Gregory, who was a big deal at that time. Um, so he's impressed. It's like, wow, this is not what I expected. He said, let's, let's do it. How fast can you get it on the air? So I said, well, it's like four 30. And when do you want it on the air? And he said, as soon as possible, but I want you to get it right from the get go. So I said, well, we can give you, cause I checked it out. We can give you, we can give this show, which we called, he called TV city room, lousy name. Uh, from 7 to 8 p.m. Monday through Friday. And um, I said, I, can ha- I can't do it today, but I know I can do it tomorrow. And he said, tomorrow? Are you crazy? I said, trust me. We had it on. We did it for eight months. But how much money did you tell him it was going to cost him? And I where, don't how'd even you come remember up with the that? exact figure, but I mean, whatever it was, we got everything for free at Wayne State because we owned the station, the cameras, the so labor you, was free. So you're making... I'm making money for the university. I mean, I didn't didn't see a dime out of it. Got but, it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we charge like thirty thousand dollars a week or something like that for five hours of live television. But so so that worked out well. So then I get a call from Fred Friendly about a month later, and he says, uh, you know, it's I hear it's going pretty well. I've been in town once. I checked it out. It's pretty good because you know you in those days you you sort of had to be there. You know, you couldn't you couldn't really see it unless you were there. And although we videotaped them, uh, and he said, look, there's a, now there's a newspaper strike in San Francisco. How would you like to set the same thing up in San Francisco? And I said, well, I don't know if I can get away. And he's like, what? You don't know if you can get away? I said, you know, look, I don't make anything for doing this. And I'm a busy guy, you know, because I'm working at Channel 50. I'm doing two live shows on weekends at Channel 50. I'm literally working, you know, like 16, 18 hours a day, seven days a week through Christmas, New Year's, the whole thing. So he says, look, you, you've got to do this. Okay. Whatever it takes, you know, I'll go, I'll go. How about if I go to Detroit and I go there with you? I said, okay. I would, I'd, I'd never been, you know, West of Michigan at this point, uh-huh. you know? So, so we went out there and I set it up and, you know, and, and, and that was that. But one of my reporters who was in, was a hot reporter in the Detroit version was Van Sauter who, you know, Van with the big beard, who then went on to be president of CBS News and president of CBS Network and all that other stuff. So we had some pretty good people. And that's the main theme in my career, whatever success I've had, it's always been a team effort and it's all about people. That's what I love best about the industry. If, if you have a yes, I can attitude, there's almost anything you can do, especially if you can put the right people together, which we did in all those cases. Incredible. So tell me, uh, so all this success, people start seeing as a young man that you're doing great things and things are working. Let's fast forward to how you feel you got into a position where, you know, you were able to found telepictures and get that going. Tell me the transition from being a 
quasi-college student doing these things for the university, working all these times, setting up things in San Francisco and being an innovator. And how did that trajectory go to start telepictures? Well, in fast jumps, what happened was I developed a reputation. Uh, some of the O&O, the owned and operated station groups, w were interested in possibly hiring me. The best company at the time, I think, was Westinghouse Broadcasting, was the most prestigious, highest quality company. Uh, but ABC was the most interested in me. You may remember Dean McCarthy and Dick O'Leary. Uh, they offered me a job to become program director. I'm still in my 20s at this point, mid-20s. Uh, of of Channel 7 in New York for like four times when I'm making a Channel 50. Because by now I've gotten my master's degree. I'm married. We have a, you know, we conceive on our wedding night. You know, we have a kid. All of a sudden my life has radically changed living in Detroit. And um, uh, so on the way to, to, to New York to take this gig where I triumphantly returned to New York in less than 10 years from when I left it, uh, I get a call from Westinghouse strangely enough, serendipity, you know, we want to hire you at the first uh, television station in the history of the world, uh, ra radio station, KDKA and KDKA, KDKA TV and radio. We want you to run news and programming. It was the first radio station in the world is KDKA and KDKA TV may be the first combined. I'm not sure, but KDKA was one of the first five or 10 television stations, you know, in, in the United States. Got it. And a great station in a great city. Ended up living in Pittsburgh, Troy. So on the way there, I stop, stop over, fall in love with Westinghouse and KDKA, and then go to New York, go to lunch on the Monday, you know, stopped in Pittsburgh on the weekend, uh, go to lunch, and I'm sitting there with the ABC guys, was sort of a hard-drinking crowd. We're at, you know, one of the top restaurants in New York. But you were prepared for that from your days at Wayne State, uh, uh, sitting around the table uh, with those guys playing poker. So you're Right, right. I gave up Columbia to go to Wayne State, so I might give up ABC, or New York and ABC to go to Westinghouse in Pittsburgh, which you, I did. CF, you did it again. Yeah, you Dick O'Leary said, you, you, know, you, 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 you know, called me every name in the book. The deal to go to New York was about 60 grand. Deal to go to Pittsburgh was 25. And you went to I Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. Yeah, because... Here's here's another thing that I here's another well this would be my advice to some people who would hear that Ari don't take another podcast yeah <laughs> which is you know if you really believe in yourself you know you you were born with as a, everybody is born as an asset manager the asset you're going to always manage is yourself right so you got to take the long haul view and it's all about which I got from my parents and my grandfather which is. It's all about, are you with people who are honorable, supportive, who are going to be with you in thick or thin, you know, and are you going to be proud of what it is you're doing, you know, when you're there? Is it, is it, will, will it bring out the best you have to offer? Because in the long run, if you're good, you will succeed. And if you succeed, you'll be able to, to pick. It's like my theory of compensation in the business. No one in, in, in the industry, in the media industry or show business, in my opinion, is paid what they're worth. They're either underpaid, which is in most cases, or or overpaid, in some cases grossly overpaid. You never reach that point of stasis because as you're struggling and going up, you're underpaid and possibly underappreciated, but you just have to keep slogging through. And then once you really make it and you're a success, you're probably going to be over-rewarded. And you can't let that go to your head or then you're going to slip again. 
and people will applaud because we love when people fall. And then in our business, it's exciting when people, you know, make comebacks and you, and you have to do that. Everybody, no one goes through it with, uh, you know, with an undefeated record. However, four years later, I end up being offered the job to be the chairman and CEO of, of Westinghouse Productions. But you'd never work again. Right, exactly. But we had, as you know, we had had the we had the David Frost, Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas. Douglas ran twenty years. Frost ran close to ten years. Merv went on for twenty five or you know or, or thirty years. Those are just some of our shows. And then we had we had others that were you know ran for a long time. So I, for me, it was it was the right thing. Uh, but you wouldn't have do. gotten offered that gig to go back to New York if you hadn't killed it in Pittsburgh. Yeah. But I, 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 I'll just make a quick reference to something that that I've never, I've really never said out loud to anybody. So, you're gay. I, n- no, I'm not okay, gay. Just checking. No, definitely <laughs> not. Gay. One of them. I'm not gay or a woman, you know. But you know, what can you? We'll, we'll have to. We'll have to overcome those those deficiencies. Um, so, um, I'm now the, you know, I'm 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 a 30 year old CEO with Westinghouse and there's a management meeting that remember the, the late great Don McGannon, who was really my mentor and uh-huh. an incredible guy. So we're at a place called far horizons in Sarasota, Florida, and we're having this high level management meeting for, for Westinghouse, all of Westinghouse. Um, and he says, David, I want you to organize it because you know, you got that flair, you're a producer and this, that, and this. So I organize this meeting. We get to the, and it's, it's one of those things where you meet with these, the mucky mucks of Westinghouse Electric, which at that time was an equal company to GE. Big, big, you know, major company, Pittsburgh based. I happen to be buddies with, because uh, I lived a few blocks from the CEO of the company who loved me, this guy. It was the son he never had. And so we're down there and we arrive and my wife, and then the spouses come. So my wife arrives and as my wife arrives, we're, we're supposed to, we finished our meetings and we're going to like, everybody's going to go swim in the ocean. And I go to swim in the ocean and my wife calls me from this bungalow that we had that was on stilts right by the water. She says, there's a guy on the phone who's calling you. His name is Herb Schlosser. Uh, and he says, it's urgent. So, I come running out of the water. Now all these big Westinghouse guys are around me. It's like Herb Schlosser, who was the CEO of NBC Inc. at that time. He offers me the job to be president of NBC Network. In those days, NBC Entertainment, affiliate relations, what became three jobs were all in one job. The guy who was the president at that time was a guy by the name of Bob Howard. Most of those guys in those days came out of sales. And I'm really more of a news programming guy and a real broadcaster. Um, so he he he's so excited, Herb. It's almost like telling his son he got into Harvard type of thing. Because he I, he had met me. I had hired Jessica Savage, and he was trying, and Mort Krim. He tried to get them to be the hosts of the Today Show. I had this sort of innate ability to pick talent. Uh, not that I haven't made mistakes, but, you know. I, I've had a, I've had a few successes. But you're in well. your 30s. You're like the youngest CEO in the country at the time. You're 30. Yeah. You're the youngest CEO of the country at one of the greatest um, companies around Westinghouse, and people are seeing that you're doing great work. And he knows you're under contract, but he calls you, offers you this gig, and what do you do? 
I, he said, I, 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 he, there are these voices in the back. I said, where, where are you? He says, we're having a board meeting. I want to put this up and get board approval. I said, what? We, we've never discussed this. I don't know what the compensation package is. What, that will not be an issue, David. Don't worry about it. I'm going to take care of you. And I said, but Herb, I, you can't possibly expect me to say uh, yes. I said, by the way, I asked you where you were. Let me tell you where I am. And I tell him. And he says, like, I could give a shit, you know, it's just like, <laughs> just say yes and we'll work it out. You know, uh, when are you going to be back? I'll be back in three days. We'll, we'll work it out. Then I, I, I just, it doesn't feel right. So I talk him into, just let me think about it overnight. So all night I'm up thinking like, wow, I just can't believe this is happening. Tell me what your wife says you should do. I have never discussed a career decision with my wife ever. This was as close as I could because she happened to be with me in a hotel room. Whatever I did, I did and, you know, told her afterwards. And this is includes move, moving to the Philadelphia, Chicago, Pittsburgh twice, New York, Detroit. Let's just guess where I am and guess where we're moving. I'm not a good husband in that way. <laughs> well, it must be working. You've been together for a long We've time. We've been together. It's, it's, it takes it's, a strong woman to keep the train on the tracks. Her. Yes. Well, she's my wife was born and grew up in Puerto Rico. So, I mean, she's got that strong Latin blood. So, uh, you know, I was up all night. She fell asleep. And, you know, in the morning she said, so what are you going to do? And I said, it just, it just doesn't feel right. I mean, here I am. What am I going to tell him again? And I mean, it's just like he stuck his neck out and I, I just, it doesn't feel right. She said, where do you think that this job would, where would we live this time? Uh, cause we had the, the new job had us moving back to New York, which was nice because both of our families live there and everything like that. We're both very family oriented. And I said, well, I mean, the networks are evolving to West coast. So, I mean, I could, it's New York now, but I could see it being a lot of traveling to the West coast. Now, remember my wife grew up in the tropics. She's not a winter person. And I did promise my wife that when we got married, if I stayed, if I had luck in my career, that whatever it was we're going to end up in a warm place and I'm not a fan of Florida. So we're going to end up in California one way or another. And, uh, so she said, so this could be the ticket to California, huh? And I said, it could be, but it's, you know, she said, well, look, I know you'll do the right thing. And she left the room and, uh, you know, and I ended up that morning calling Schlosser and passing. And I recommended a guy who was already working there, who was like three levels below Brandon Tartikoff, the late, great Brandon, uh, whom I had met because we both, uh, I was once a promotion director and I used to win all these, what's now called BPME, it was called BPA then, would win all these promotion awards. Then I hired Jim Moloshuk to work for me, he was probably the best guy I've ever seen. And Brandon did the same thing. He was working at WGN, but he was just a, a low level guy. And, uh, you know, so we, we had become friends at an early time and I actually hired Brandon at his request to work on the Mike Douglas show with Rick Ludwin, who was his buddy that he grew up with. Rick Ludwin, who is credited with discovering and putting Seinfeld on the air through the late night department at mm -hmm. NBC. Yeah. Talented guy. One of our associate producers on the Douglas show. I hired Brandon <clears throat> who lasted less than a week. But you're in a position here now where you can really... You seem like you're so all that background led to how we could form telepictures because I'd okay. done everything that you pretty much could do. You're in a job at Westinghouse, which pays how much a year at that point when you're 30? 
Uh, 75 grand in a bonus. Okay. So you have the opportunity before you pass to go to the chairman of Westinghouse and say, look, to be with in Florida. You were with him at Florida. Look, I'm being offered a blank check. This guy's probably going to pay me twice, three times what I make right now, probably $200,000 a year. Um, He's offering me this. I want to stay here. What can you do financially for me to come close to that? Did you do that? Well, I did go to McGannon. Uh, We had this schedule that I had put together, and I'm known as an overscheduler, so we had every 15 minutes booked for the whole day. But Don was one of those, you know, rise before the, the rooster crows guys, and I was up all night, you know, so... We met early in the morning, and I went to him, and I told him the whole situation. And, uh, I mean, Don, Don McGannon is a guy who was the one of the leading Catholics in America, a very religious man, had 13 kids, lived in New Canaan, Connecticut. He took me once, because I'm very interested in theology, to, to meet Pope John Twenty-Third, who I was, to me, the greatest living pope, and very similar to the guy that's doing the job right now. And uh, everybody laughed at me because I said, I'm, I'm going to Rome for the first time with Don McGann and we're going to have an audience with the Pope. And they said, an audience with the Pope is going to be you and like 60,000 people in St. Peter's Square. I said, no, but he said it's a private audience. It was me, Don, the Pope, and like four or five guys in red robes at the far end of a big room. And that was it. It was really was a private audience. In my lifetime, I've never sat across from somebody who had an audience with the Pope. So in any event, I went to Don and, you know, I, I completely confessed the situation. And he said, he told me a great story that I had forgotten uh, for a long time until this moment. He said, you know, David, I, I was uh, in a similar position to you uh, at a similar age. And, um, William Paley came to me, you know, the, the guy, uh, owner, founder of CBS, and um, and Frank Stanton, who was the number two guy and also a legendary historical figure at that time and since. And they offered me the job to run CBS. And at that time, I said, well, what were you doing at that time? He said, well, I had just invented uh, the Dumont Network, with Dumont and I couldn't leave them because it would have just gone down and we're inventing this job for you. And, uh, if you leave, we'll, you know, he mentioned a few people, any of those guys will do a competent job, but they won't do the job that you would do. And, um, I can't imagine, you know, that other job, you're going to be a custodian. You're a guardian at the gate. Here you're going to get to build the bridge yourself and everything. And if I were you, I would do what I did then, and I would stay with us. Uh, but almost anybody else I would know in their right mind would jump at this opportunity, and you should do whatever you feel right with, and I'll always love you like a son. And I just, you know, my voice cracked, you know, and I said, um, I'm staying. I just can't. I can't leave. It just doesn't feel right, you know. And that's, so I did, I stayed. And did he throw you a few extra shekels? Nothing then. I didn't bring anything up. He didn't bring anything up. Just like a dad with his son. Keeps the allowance the same. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I mean, I I was treated very well. um, I was treated very well by the company. 
All right. So then you go and you decide you want to do this new venture with telepictures. Tell us how it all came about. Well, what happens is that um, I do the, you know, I do the, the Group W Productions job, you know, which was great, by the way. I mean, we had, we had, we had the best documentary unit and I'd grown up, I'd, I'd won Emmys in, you know, for, for documentaries and news. So anyway, I do, I do all that. And then the political climate changed. McGannon was the first person I ever knew who somehow, one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. Uh, and, um, he, he develops what would now be called Alzheimer's at a young age. And, uh, the company just changed. The guys in Pittsburgh asked me, would I be interested in McGannon's job? Uh, and coming back to Pittsburgh for a third time and then maybe being, you know, in my lifetime CEO of Westinghouse Electric. I lived in Pittsburgh twice. Great, great tours of duty. My wife loved it, but we weren't going back there a third time. So I turn it down. The guy who emerges as the, you know, the leading guy was unbeknownst to me, sort of a rival of, of mine and became very uncomfortable and I left the, I left the company. So I'm now sort of technically on the beach and uh, looking at different options. And uh, a guy by the name of Marv Shapiro, who had been the number two guy under McGann, and calls me up and he says, do you know Michael Solomon and Michael Guerin? I said, I know their names, but I mean, I, I don't really know those guys. He says, well, they've just started a company. My son is going to work for them. I mean, they need help. They don't know it, but they need help. They're two New York guys. Michael's an international salesman, great salesman, worked at Universal for a million years. Garen's a Harvard, you know, financially oriented guy. But these these guys don't really know the business like you do. You know, you should meet with them. So at that point, on the same day that I got an offer to buy out a thing I'd created called NIWS News Information Weekly Service to replace the junk feeds, because what used to happen is that if you're a local news local affiliate on your news in order to excerpt the network news feed, which is not necessarily what, you know, today is say, uh, you know, Brian on Williams on NBC and, and Scott Pelley and those things. But in those days it's Cronkite and Huntley Brinkley and these, you know, big names from the past that you, you had to pay them a fee to be able to do excerpt that stuff. And you needed it to fill out your 11 o'clock news because you did the world and the country and the local and then sports. And I was one of the guys who had created eyewitness news to change news from what it was because eyewitness news took you there. We were the first ones. I, our station was one of the first two stations. I don't know if we were first or second to do ENG electronic news gathering. So we did all that live stuff. We were breakthrough. We created, and we created two hour news blocks. that used to be a half hour and everything. So knowing news inside out and having won a lot of news awards, I, I, I knew that stations as we defined, as we defined uh, uh, local news, eyewitness news was not just taking you there, but remember that slogan that we had, there's more to news than just, there's, there's more to the 11 o'clock newscast than just news, weather and sports type of thing. It was all that stuff of not just here's what happened, why it happened and how it affects you connecting with your audience and, and bringing in all these other specialists. So I knew if I put out a news service, that I could sell it to every station in the country because I came from the world. I was in that fraternity, just like I'm lucky enough to be in the so-called Hollywood creative community, you know, that mafia. I was, you know, I was in that news mafia. 
So I created this thing. I went to a few of the companies. I went to Viacom and Viacom said, we want it. We'll, you know, we'll give you $5 million uh, and a consulting deal for three years. Do you want to do this? So I'm coming out of that meeting, just walking on air. I'm going to do the deal because I'm not even exclusive to them. I can still do everything else I want to do, including take a job someplace. And uh, But I wanted to be entrepreneur and control my own destiny. And Michael Guerin, who's a dear friend, the guy from Harvard, was one of the really the two original founders of Telepictures is now in existence for a few months, but nobody knows it kind of. He, 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 he comes and tracks me down and is walking me, you know, to my next, my next meeting with a major company and telling me why I should go into telepictures as an equal member. We'll open up the West coast. We'll go into first run production. You know, all it was, was really just selling kind of foreign rights to we'll say be kind and say second tier product that everybody else had passed on. And, uh, you know, and Dick Robertson was leaving CBS Sports to go there, didn't know anything about TV stations and syndication. Turns out to be probably one of the two greatest salesmen in the history of television syndication, along with Roger King, I'd say. Uh, but, uh, you know, so I end From up- King one, World. Of King World. Fanta- you know, fantastic talent. Uh, that that So I end up once again like, wait, there's $5 million of hard money with a big established company, or I can take a few hundred thousand shares of a company with two guys that really don't know what I know. And they're going to be in New York, which is where it's going to be me and like this guy who's driving cross country next week, Dick Robertson, and we're going to share a secretary. Which one would you, would you choose? As you've noticed, I have this tendency to take the low bid. That's right. If I selling my million dollar house and someone offers me 500 grand, probably I would take it because <laughs> I'm an idiot. So uh, I did that. And, um, you know, and the rest was history. I mean, we had, you know, a, sort of a Pixar like run. Every single thing we did worked. People's Court, Love Connection, NIWS ran for nine years. Uh, you know, and then we folded it. Then we, and then we sold our company ultimately. But you were printing money uh, at the time. Time Warner, but yeah, we started a magazine company. We became the biggest publisher of of children's magazines in America. You know, we got Disney, we got the Muppets, we got Hasbro, Mattel. So you went from a guy making under a hundred thousand dollars a year to a guy making millions of dollars a year. Says who? Well, you were the founder of the company. You co- yeah, but we took very little. I mean, we literally stayed at each other's houses. Because I was the West Coast, which was really 90%. You just said you had everything was like Pixar. Pixar isn't making $100,000 a year. No, but we kept reinvesting in the company. We didn't take much out of the company. So you kept betting into the company. I was making more than, substantially more than $100,000 eventually in the 80s. But uh, the really big bet was, you know, it's, it's a blessing for those people who may listen to this, who come from no money and they're, you know, in their, at that point in their career, that it's, it's, it, 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 it's an unfair advantage because money means nothing to you. You know, you don't have to have more. You don't, you know, you, you just don't, it's, it's not that important. And ultimately you get more than you you deserve in my case anyway, uh, despite a pure lack of planning and any sort of adequate training to, to do most of the jobs I've ever had. Well, then you hire people, you know, like I had Moonves and Chernin and Les Moonves and or, Peter Chernin, two of know, the most powerful people. You hired them? Well, no, Les was already with our company. He was a junior guy in movies and miniseries, and I moved him into 
moved him up to be my key development guy. And he eventually became the president of Lorimar. Yeah, and Chernin I reached out to. He had been, I'd known him from Showtime because I had produced a bunch of shows for Showtime, like off-Broadway plays and things like that. Remember Showtime on, on Broadway? Or Broadway on Showtime, rather. And um, so I hired Peter, and we put him in the in the movie our movie company. If you ever get him to do this, ask him about that because he we we were so bad. I I didn't supervise movies, but I was briefly on the green light committee with Brillstein and and Merv Adelson and Bernie myself. Brillstein. Yeah, and so Chernin was our head of movies, and um, we had the worst string of movies I would say in the history of business. <laughs> And uh, I, I eventually quit because I was able to bring a, a project with the Gordons called Twins to the company. And we passed on Twins in order to do a bunch of movies you never heard of. The one movie I really, that I was responsible, largely responsible for was Dangerous Liaisons, uh, which, which I, again, relationships, Bernie Brillstein. Yeah. Yeah. We had, well, Bernie had been offered, people had been offered in, to buy the Brillstein company for many years and Bernie was similar to sort of like like me in a, in a way that he wasn't really about the money. He was doing very well. He was enjoying himself. He had this, the, I'd say, the biggest, most successful management company. This is just before Brad comes in. Wernick is there. Brad Gray. Yeah, Sandy Wernick's been with him for you know forever. And um, you know, I explained to Bernie why he should turn down being skilled at making the the uh, impolitic, stupid decision. Uh, was able to use some of that that strategy and in, in talking Bernie into why for a lesser figure than Columbia was offering, he should sell his company to us and what we could do together. And we did. Dick and I negotiated the deal. We bought from Ted Turner and Mike Milk and brokered the deal. We beat everybody else out. We bought the MGM lot. You know, Bernie wanted to be on the MGM lot. We were on the floor. We were on either side of what was the Louis B. Mayer office. We were close buddies. I, I, I love Bernie. He was one of the greatest people I ever worked with, as was Tartikoff. Those would be two of my top five. And so all of that worked out great. So And, and we were able to build up what is now the standard model for, um, for, for the talents, talent management slash production company. And we were able to bring in, uh, bring in Brad, whom I knew because... I had met him through Shandling. Brad Gray and Shan he was managing Shandling. Yeah, and a guy that I time. loved uh, and thought could be a big star as a host personality, a guy by the name of Bob Saget. So that's through those talent I met Brad and I was impressed with Brad because Brad reminded me that if I was Bernie's age, it was like I was meeting the second incarnation of, of, of Bernie and introduced, made the mistake of introducing Brad initially to Bernie and so who, who, knew, who knew who Brad was before that? I said, I want to introduce you to, you know, Bernie Jr. This guy is you in his 20s. He's going to be the biggest guy in the business at what he does. And we've got to have him. And because of that, you know, it's like opposites attract. He was too much like Bernie at that, at that stage. He became very different in his style and everything and has been very, very successful. But we built this, you know, sort of studio within a studio. And now, you know. Three Arts and all those other guys followed after that. Take me to where you figured out that you wanted to work with and partner with Quincy Jones. So Steve Ross, another Brooklyn guy from the neighborhood. Um, I had met Steve Ross uh, at a function 
uh, in the late 80s. And he said, boy, you know, you guys are just amazing. You know, you're, you, when you were telepictures, you were trading at a 21 multiple and, you know, highest multiple in the business. Mm-hmm. You're going to be the next, excuse me, MCA Universal. And I said, well, thank you. That's very nice. And he's, so we had one of these kinds of conversations. He was telling me how he grew up and how he met his first wife and all of that stuff. And, and he wanted to know my, 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 how I grew up. And I said, you know, there's a point of intersection because you did something that made me very angry when one of my grandparents died. And, um, what, what happened was that Steve's family, uh, was, among other things, in the in the funeral parlor business, Jew, Jewish funeral homes, and being Steve, the, he actually married into this. Uh, so, being Steve Ross, who actually would be number into my top four. Okay, <laughs> I'll get to five before we're finished here. Uh, that that um, he looked at an underutilized asset, which were the black Cadillac limousines that were the standard, you know, for funerals back in the sixties and maybe even the fifties, but this was the sixties. And, and so we're having this funeral and uh, the first funeral I'd ever been to of a close, someone close to me. And it's the grandmother that I said was so, you know, was so influential in my life. And uh, there were no Cadillacs. There were like Chevrolets and some of them are black. I'd never seen a black Chevy, but they're like blue, which to me was sort of an affront. And I, I found out, you know, like as a detective, it took me three years to figure out what happened was that Steve, what he would do is after the funerals were over, which was always before sundown, right? He would take the limos and book them into Manhattan, into the hot clubs and things like that. And they would, he, he, he opened a limousine service and sometimes the people would keep the limousines long through the night. And so when you're at your funeral for your grandmother at 930 in the morning and the cars aren't there, it's because they're in Manhattan, you know, with with these celebrities, because Steve was always, you know, enamored of show business. And so he laughed, you know, when I told him the story and I, la- I, I laughed too. Steve, so Steve and I were pretty good friends. And when we negotiated the deal, uh, which really backfired f- for me. Uh, the Laura Martella Pictures deal. He said, "Look, I I just want to tell you, we're going to buy the company, uh, b- uh, b- uh, uh, on one condition. So, what's the one condition? Because uh, I'm not going to negotiate the deal, Steve. I mean, you have your lawyers, and I'm not trained to do that." He said, "Well, I think we probably could cut a better deal than the lawyers, but you're right; they're going to do it." He says, "You you're going to have to sign a blind ten year key man deal." I said, "Well, then I guess we're not making a deal." And so our meeting ended. This was in his apartment. And that was it. But Steve, since he wanted the deal, managed to call enough people to say that, you know, Salzman's going to screw the deal for you guys. You know, um, and he didn't tell the details, but, you know, Salzman's going to kill the deal. You know, so don't look at don't look at me. Look at him. So all of a sudden I'm getting phone calls from board members, you know, original investors, some of my partners, because by that point, you know, Dick is an equal partner, Dick Robertson, along with Michael Solomon, Michael, Michael Guerin. And that was the only company that we were interested in selling to. Otherwise, we were going to keep the company, which in our heart of hearts is what we wanted to do. 
And with that pressure, you know, a little bit like the McGannon thing with, do I go to NBC, you know, the skyscraper opportunity or stay, you know, in the three-story building, uh, I, 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 I buckled and took one for the team because it's not what I wanted to do. But I had a handshake understanding with Steve uh, that I won't go into all the details, but it was that if, if certain things didn't pan out in a certain way, he'd let me out. And what happened was um, things, he lived up to his word. And I said to him, I, I don't want to run a studio anymore. I've run the number one studio for like six years. Uh, I'm just one of those guys. I'm not a long-termer. You know, I'm just, I like to keep doing, reinventing myself, pioneering, taking chances. And he said, oh, well, how, what if I gave you 50 million bucks and married you to Quincy Jones? And we started a company. Uh, Quincy needs this guy. He's my favorite person in the world. This is Steve about Quincy, which I think was true. I think he was his favorite person in the world. Uh, and, um, he said, and I said, I, I don't think I'm interested. No. He offers you $50 million to start a company with Quincy Jones. And you say, I don't think I'm interested in that. What are you, Dave Chappelle? Well, well my attorney for 22 years at that time, or ended up being 22 years, but it was almost 22 years, maybe 15 was Ken Ziffrin. I went to Ziffrin. And I said, you know, this thing happened. Ken, one of the greatest uh, entertainment attorneys in the world. And, and, and uh, takes two bests. And ever. is a 5% attorney, by the way. Yeah. And so that 50 million looked pretty good to Ken Ziffrin. Yeah, exactly. However, Ken's advice being the, the incredibly bright and candid guy that he is was, okay, let's go through the reasons why you should or shouldn't do it. And, um, he, uh, he, he, so I said, bottom line it for me, Ken. He said, you shouldn't do it. I won't say why, but, and I said, you know, I, I, I kind of think you're right. Uh, I, I turned it down initially. Uh, he said, D don't you want to meet Quincy? I said, I've met Quincy. I met Quincy when I was a teenager. He doesn't, he won't remember it. I will. And I met Quincy when we did the Mike Douglas show. I mean, I've met Quincy. I think he's everything you said he is. I think he's an incredible thing. He's a gift to the world. Uh, but I'm not looking for a partner. I'm, I think I'm going to do this one solo. And so then Bob Pittman, whom I knew quite well at the time, and, you know, called me up and Pittman in a nice way told me I was a schmuck and that uh, I should uh, I should do this this is my chance to be David Geffen. I said, well, David Geffen went to the same high school, grew up a mile and a half from me. Uh, I couldn't be more different than David Geffen. I, I, th I think the world of David Geffen and, you know, cause David Geffen, some people don't get along with David Geffen. Great guy in my experience, you know, deserves to be a multi-billionaire and a very generous man. Great guy. Poor, another poor kid from Brooklyn, from Crown Heights. Um, and as uh, so I said, I'm not, I'm not interested. So he calls me up again and talks me into meeting with Quincy. We have a meeting. It's supposed to be a one-hour meeting up at Quincy's house because Quincy doesn't drive. You know, everybody, the, the, it's the old thing, you know, Muhammad doesn't go to the mountain. The mountain goes to Muhammad or vice versa. And um, it was a six-hour meeting and a love fest. And uh, at the end of it, Quincy says, hey, look, you know, they're trying to marry us together. I wasn't that interested in meeting. You weren't that interested in meeting 
But now we can see those guys are smarter than we are. We should do this because we're going to just kill. You know, we talked about let's produce the Oscars. Let's produce the uh, – he, he was buddies with Klaus Schwab who had started this new thing called the World Economic Council, which has become the biggest meaning of its type in the world. He said, we can go there. We'll produce that. We'll bring in all these world leaders. We'll create the World Arts Council. We'll start – you know, you like television stations. We'll buy television stations, which we did. You know, we'll start magazines. I want to do uh, Vibe magazine. Uh, which I don't think was called Vibe at the time. It became Vibe. He said, you've got this background. You've started magazines. I did start magazines. And uh, I mean, it's like a marriage made in heaven. There's nothing we can't do. Now you're married to a Puerto Rican. You know, I'm black. Uh, we live in a multicultural society. It's our time, man. Let's just go do this. Quincy's a persuasive guy. So ultimately I did the deal. And uh, we had Quincy Jones, David Salzman Entertainment. We had all these wonderful names. I had, I had already formed a company called Millennium Entertainment, which I thought was a pretty good name. And, um, you know, and, and I wanted to do it. And then Steve Ross and then Ziffrin said the same thing. He said, you know, like, it, we're, it's, the, it's now the age of brands. You guys are both brands, you know. He, he's a bigger worldwide brand because he's an entertainer, but in the worlds that you operate in, you're a valuable brand and he's a valuable brand. Just call it Quincy Jones, David Salzman, whatever. And we just thought it was a mouthful. So we, it just was Quincy David entertainment, QDE. And it worked out very well. We, you know, it worked out very well for us, particularly on the TV station side was the biggest score. We did a, I did a deal that Quincy, you know, brought in the door and I did the deal with, uh, with Tribune, and we we put together a station group that we ultimately sold to them for a lot of money. Part uh, of the reason why they went bankrupt. Before I get into uh, the closing parts of this podcast, I'm going to mention something. Uh, mm -hmm. It might be a show, a person, anything. And I want you to tell me a quick holy shit story that, you know, that, that somebody might not know about or that, that happened to you with, with it or how it came about or whatever. And, and let's just go with it that way. Okay. Okay. Love connection. Eric, the, the late Eric Lieber, uh, came to us, a former Mike Douglas show producer, uh, known for his irascibility. And, uh, but it, again, we got along very well. And Sandy Wernick came in and he said, I have an idea. There's this new thing called computer dating. Why don't we do a show? I said, okay, so what's the show? Lay out the show for me you know, act by act, you know, beat by beat. It's like, no, that that's the show. There's this company <laughs> called Great Expectations. I think it's a good name. The guy that runs it is an idiot, probably hasn't had a date in his life. And uh, let's do a deal with him. I said, let me think about it. So that night I wrote a seven page treatment. Scott Stone was working for me. He was sort of From fresh Stone out of college. Stanley. And um, I write this thing. I show it to Scott in the morning. I said, what do you think? He says, this is fantastic. You know, this is, that's a show. Let's, you know, let's, I, do you feel obligated to do this with, with Eric? I said, absolutely. You know, it's, he's, it's Brillstein and I would, you know, there's always enough money and success to share. So went to Eric and we, we changed the show from what he originally wanted to do a little bit. And, uh, he, he had seen it more as remember the embarrassment shows, like the Barris shows he's had seen it as the next level of an embarrassment show just to shred people. And I saw it as a, I saw it as heart you know, a heart show. So he had a little guy who was literally an ex jockey, Fred something. And we did a run through and it was just tonally wrong. I said, we're not, you know, cause I controlled, we were, we were telepictures, what we were going to do and not do, you know? And, and so I said, we're just not going to do that show. 
But if you let me work with you, you can get the created by, officially with the Writers Guild. I don't care. But let me produce it the way I think we should do it. And, um, and there's a guy I want to use for the show. And just knowing how acerbic you are, you're going to say no. And, um, and I say, he said, who is it? And I said, it's Chuck Woolery. He said, that dope, you know, <laughs> you got to be kidding. That guy can't even tie his own shoes. That's why he wears loafers, you know? So Eric had great put downs, but was actually a terrific guy and a great producer. So I met, we did it and met Chuck and the show was, was an instant hit, you know, ran for, I don't know, 11 or 13 years, something like that. Alf. Alf was all really, well, I, Alf is a great story. So I'm up in the Brillstein office uh, at, you know, right there in the Luckman building on, on Sunset and where I periodically would come by, not that often. And um, for those of you in LA, it's the building where the Soho house now is on top of and Boa is underneath at Sunset, a little bit uh, uh, west of Doheny. Exactly. And um, so I go to Bernie's office and Wernick is there, and um, uh, a guy comes in with an East Coast accent named Paul Fusco, and we're on the phone. Bernie's on the phone with the late Jim Henson, and uh, that's a whole other story, which for another time, because uh, within an hour or two, he could still be alive. It was that close with Henson. But um, anyway, Henson's on the phone, the sweetest guy you could ever meet unbelievable creator. And he says, you got to meet this kid. And he's telling like, like give the guy a chance. He's not very polished. He's the best guy of his type. I've ever seen him. I just so happened to, to stop by then. It wasn't scheduled. Guy comes in with one of those dark green hefty bags, Fusco, and he pulls out Alf and he does the Alf thing. Don Rickles style, in, you know, cause he was an insult comic, really uh, the Alf character. And he says, and and so that's the show, and that's how Alf was was born. Bernie put uh, Patchett and Tarsus, who were very hot at the time, Jay Tarsus and Tom Patchett, yeah. who ultimately during that time split up. Mm -hmm. uh, and I I had met those guys, tried out for four years to be writers on the Mike Douglas show. They were from Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania, and dreamed of being in the big city, Philadelphia, where the Douglas show used to come from. And they never could get hired on the on the Douglas show. Went on to have, you know, a, a dozen successful uh, primetime sitcoms. So um, that's the Alf story. Now you mentioned Jim Henson, who Bernie Brillstein told me at the last breakfast I ever had with him that he was the only genius that he ever represented. I'm sorry to bring you back to this, but you just said something that I have no knowledge of, that within an hour or so, he'd still be alive today. What does that mean? I don't know that story. So uh, we're now in business. You know, we the Brillstein Company or Brillstein Gray, it might have been by that time. And we'd, we'd done Muppet Magazine and all sorts of things and had gotten to know Jim and, you know, Brian is one of his sons and Lisa, very, very talented kids, great family. And Jim was, I think, in the Carolinas. I'm in New York for some reason and I'm on the phone with Bernie and he says, uh, we're talking and I said, how's Henson? Because he'd been sick for like a month or more. And he said, it's really, really bad. I don't know what to do. He's just like, off 
someplace by himself. I said, that's, that's impossible. How could this happen? I said, Bernie, look, from NIWS, I have this guy who used to work for me, Dr. Isidore Rosenfeld, has written 30 books, one of the most famous cardiologists, cardiologists, the presidents, he was cardiologist, the four straight heads of the Soviet Union, you know, and, and he was, is the chairman of the board at New York Hospital. I'll call up Izzy Rosenfeld and get get a private plane and fly fly the guy to uh, up to New York and we'll get him into New York Hospital before the guy, he could die. It's like he's got something beyond pneumonia, it sounds like to me. I'm not a doctor. So Bernie talks him into it. Uh, he comes up. Uh, I wasn't there to meet him in the hospital because I had to go back to New York, uh, from New York to L.A. where I was living. And uh, Bernie calls me up and says, um, you were right. About what? He says, Henson, I mean, that was the place. He said, but I've got some really bad news. Like my heart sinks. He's like, what do you mean bad news? He said, he has this thing. Uh, I don't even remember what it was. It was some, you know, medical term for what he had. And uh, it's it's too late. He's uh, He's never getting out of that hospital. He's probably going to die within the next 24 hours. I said, really? And he said, and here's the irony. They said if he had gotten here yesterday, for sure they could have saved him. And if he had gotten here five hours ago or maybe even an hour ago. But I said, how can they chart what's happened hour to hour? He said, David, they're doctors. You know, I mean, he got the best care. The minute he hit the building, that was it. He's going to die. And Bernie, uh, who when Belushi died, and I was with Bernie and Belushi, and Brandon Tartikoff at the Polo Lounge the day before he died of the of the overdose at the Chateau Marmont, Belushi. Bernie was so upset that he developed shingles and was incapacitated, most people don't know this, for a half a year. He barely could leave his house in Malibu. He even moved out of Beverly Hills. And the same thing happened with, not for 12, uh, six, six months or five months, but for like a month uh, with Bernie and uh, when when Henson died, when, and he did die. He died the next day, I believe. Very sad story. And here's, but here's the amazing thing in life. A few years later, I'm with Jeanette Kahn, who is the president of DC Comics. Amazing, larger than life person. Single, lives by herself, and she has the same symptoms. And I'm, uh, we had, I had secured the rights to all the DC comic books. So, which was part of now Time, Time Warner. We're now part of Time Warner at this stage. And uh, she has these symptoms. And I'm saying, you know, uh, you need to go to New York Hospital. And she lived in Manhattan. So I tell her the story. She ignores me. The next week she's worse. She ignores me. Next week I said, look, I'm going to get on an airplane and I'm going to, I'm going to take you there myself. If you're alive by the time I get there, and she says, what do you mean? I tell her the Henson story. She goes by herself because she knew people in New York hospital to, to, to New York hospital. She's admitted, ends up being there for several weeks and was told by them that she had the same thing that Henson had. And had she not gotten there in time, she would have died. How about that in terms of chills up the spine coincidence, right? It's amazing. It's, it truly is. Saturday Night Live. Okay, Saturday Night Live. So it's year 14. We have the Brillstein Company. I have this very attractive assistant named Amy Quinn. And uh, Lauren Michaels has a crush on Amy Quinn. 
This is in the 14th year of SNL? 14th year. Got it. Yeah, so it's around 1990. So the ra- it's one of those cyclical things, you know, with these long-running shows. You have ups and downs. Lauren's done a great job of surviving through the through the troughs and bringing it, you know, having enough crests. So he's hanging out in my office a lot. Bernie Brillstein is His part of the organization, uh, our overall organization, and he likes Amy Quinn. And we're all part of the whole thing, and synergy is a hot word at the time. So, you know, one day I talk him into having Bronson Pinchot, who was one of the stars of uh, one of our shows, uh, which was Perfect Strangers on ABC. And, um, you know, so we had a, a fair amount of influence with him at the time. And I won't get into any personal things because I've never really known uh, Lauren that well personally. But the show is not doing that well. Meanwhile, I've got some shows from our studio on NBC, and I'm talking to Tartikoff, who's my buddy from when we were both nothings. So uh, I'm talking to Tartikoff and somehow Saturday Night Live comes up and he has some really bad things to say that he's thinking seriously of canceling the show. You know, why don't I come up with a show that we can replace Saturday Night Live with? That's pretty interesting. So I tell this to Bernie and Bernie uh, gets very concerned. He loves Lorne, very devoted to his clients. And he tells Lorne, and Lorne is like, uh, I guess I wasn't there, ticked off that like, who does, you know, Brandon Tartikoff, who do they think, you know, this show is, you know, is, is, is one of the, you know, icons of TV. And there's a, they have some sort of a meeting and um, it goes very badly. Lorne gets into something with Tartikoff. Tartikoff calls me shortly thereafter and says, remember recently we talked about it. And he says, I'm definitely canceling the show. And I said, yeah, but it's coming up on its 15th anniversary. Are you sure you want to do that? I said, because it's kind of awkward for me because, you know, Lauren and Bernie and Bernie's one of my closest friends. And, but if you're going to cancel it, we'll, we will come in with your replacement show. He says, good, do that. So I go over with Bernie and he thinks we're going to pitch the replacement show. And uh, which I figured we'd do with Brillstein and everything because he's going to lose the show. And I go into this, the reasons why uh, the show should not be canceled. SNL. Unintentionally shoot myself in the foot uh, or my studio. So what happens is Tartikoff says, I'll think about it for one more year, but I want to do the show. What do you mean you want to do the show? He says, I want to host Saturday Night Live. Brandon, you want to host Saturday Night Live? I've seen you do stand-up and everything. Don't do it. So he says, uh, well, then it's not coming back. Tell it to Bernie. So I tell it to Bernie, and Bernie is like, you want to host the show? He'll host the show. That's the show that next season that he hosted. Remember, he's in a black leather jacket, Yeah, does the stand-up at the beginning. Yeah. That was how Brandon Tartikoff, and that's how that show stayed on the 15th year. They had a recovery year, and unfortunately it stays on long enough that I have to compete against it. And so we- With you know, Mad TV? Yeah, because, yeah. But it was, you know, we we did okay too. Mad TV would still be on if it wasn't for one, one factor, according to Peter Chern. And if you ask him, he'll tell you the same thing. Well, why don't you tell us? Why isn't Mad TV on the air after 14 seasons? Well, 
Uh, NBC, as you know, owns the Today Show. They own Meet the Press. They own the Tonight Show. They own all those shows. Uh, Fox, which has never had a real success in late night, had never had one leading up to Mad TV, a sustained success, and has never had one since, first of all, thought that the show was never going to succeed. They made me develop the show. He churn in, but mostly Gruschow, who's now at that point. Sandy Gruschow. Sandy Gruschow wants me to develop it as a Saturday because they hated having cops as a low-level low schlocky show, which was doing well, <laughs> and America's Most Wanted, and they wanted something on on Saturday night. Mad TV was supposed to be an 8 o'clock show. I said, it's it's not an eight o'clock show. You know, how how do you do a sketch show that isn't edgy? You know, it's it's it'll fail. So uh what I that was developed as an eight o'clock show. And I was able to talk, you know, Chernin and Grushow into creating this time period. And it was the same thing Chernin said to me. He said, Wait, you could be on for a full season in prime time, and you want to be on <laughs> at eleven o'clock. On a network that can't get arrested, you know, David, what is what happened to? You? Did you fall on your head? And I said, No, I'll I'll take I'll take my I'll take my chances. And you know, he, it he ran fourteen years. He didn't so, know your history. So we tried three times to because I was partners going back to you know because of the QDE relationship with Warner Brothers slash Time Warner that they're the owner of the show. And you know, all the big studios, their attitude is like we don't sell. Uh, an intellectual property. And so three times we tried, we had negotiation meetings and every time when we were getting in the red zone, something came up between Fox and Warner brothers. Like for instance, um, uh, Buffy the vampire slayer that they were taking it off of Fox, a hit show and putting it on their own network was like the first thing, first person we see wearing a Warner Brothers shield, we're going to shoot through the heart. <laughs> and then Mad TV comes walking out the door. So we got caught in the crossfire several times. So when Peter, Peter, as a friend, said, hey, look, I'm going to give you advance warning because he said, but this show could, would be on another 10 or 20 years if, if we owned the show. I don't want to do this, but we, we just can't keep it. And we're going to try our own thing. So they tried, you know, the Ferriston show and they tried other things. We won't go into those. And the, the, none of them got half the ratings that we have had. And, you know, and we went off, you know, anyway, that's, that's what happened. That's why Mad TV is not on. Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Will Smith. That's really all Quincy. Uh, he found Fresh Prince, you know, Mr. Music, hip hop world. And, uh, my, my role, uh, was, was small. What happened was when that show was going to go out, I get a call from Steve Ross. Might've been the first time he'd really called me other than the negotiations. And he says, I want you to do me a favor. Quincy Jones this is before he was going to marry us together or anything that, that I was aware of. He said, Quincy Jones has this guy called Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Do you ever hear of him? I said, yeah, I heard of him. He's like a rapper, hip hop guy from Philadelphia, I think. Uh, he says, what do you think of the guy? I said, I don't really know the guy. I don't, I don't think he's a real good rapper, but he is, he's a rich kid from City Line. I mean, he's not, he's not authentic, but he said, well, Quincy thinks he's got the goods. He's going to go see your buddy Tartikoff in Littlefield. Uh, and I want you to, uh, 
I want you, I want you to go with him. Warren Littlefield. And help set it up. And I said, well, uh, that doesn't feel right. You know, I mean, he doesn't need me. And why, I don't, you know, I basically don't know Quincy Jones. He says, well, look, I'll get Pittman to, to set it up. So Pittman sets it up and, um, and uh, I don't go to the meeting because I, it just didn't feel like, what am I doing here? Um, but I did speak to Tartikoff and I said, you know, when you meet the guy, uh, Will Smith, um, you know, you're going to see, he just jumps out of the screen. He's a star. It's what you need for Monday night. And, you know, you're in business with Quincy Jones. If I need to help, I'll help on the sidelines, but I am not part of this deal. But, um, use that vision and creativity that you have as a star maker, Brandon, as a visionary, and you will see that this guy could be you're one of the biggest stars on the network. At that time, all they really had was real people. They were in a down period. And um, he meets him, and they meet, they meet at night because Quincy, you know, he's Quincy's on Moscow time, you know, so he's, <laughs> he's, he's off by 11 hours from the rest of us. And um, they meet at 10 or 11 o'clock at night. The next morning is a, like an affiliate meeting or some sort of an NBC meeting. I couldn't go because I had to pitch someplace else. And they announce uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. That's how it got on the air. Uh, got to know Will very well and, you know, Kim Wayans and, and the rest of the cast. It was a wonderful cast that they put together. Uh, and, you know, was able to put my two cents in, you know, in subsequent seasons of maybe we need a little more of this, a little less than that. It's sort of like when we had Family Matters and it was, I got a cancellation heads up from from Tom Murphy, who was the CEO of ABC, Cap City's ABC, that th those guys in Hollywood told me they're canceling your show on Monday. And it's a, I get a call on a Friday morning. We aired on Friday nights. And I speak to Miller Boyette, who were our, you know, superstar uh, producers. We ended up having seven hit series with them at once, uh, all sitcoms, and say, we're going to get canceled. And that weekend, we, we created on a Saturday, the next day, we've taped on a Friday night, we created the Urkel character. I said, let's do, we need a Fonzie. Let's do a black Fonzie. And so Boyette says, we can't do a black Fonzie. And Tom Miller says, why can't we do a black Fonzie? He said, because everybody thinks of black people as always being the definition of cool with a capital C. So I said, okay, so we'll make him a total nerd. And Miller says, that's it. We're going to come up with, a, we're going to create this, you know, utter, utter dork with his socks rolled up and like in Archie comics, remember Archie comics is still around Dilton Doily with the little, you know, like this, that kind of a guy. And that's really, cause he was a lot like Dilton Doily. Right. So we said, we're going to create this guy. We hadn't named him yet. We, we get our crack casting department, uh, to cast people. We tell them like on Friday night, get people in there for Saturday afternoon. We met Julio white. He was the guy. We create the character, write him into that week's script. I get Tom Murphy to tell Brandon Stoddard, you can't cancel the show. You got to give them another week or two. Stoddard wants to know why. Stoddard gets into an argument, ends up leaving the network a few months later. And uh, we put Urkel in there and we get a nine-year run on the show. <laughs> Unbelievable. Okay. Your biggest disappointment in professionally in the business. What is it? 
God, there's so many. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I, there have been so many good things. It's, it's really hard to think of what is is my uh, is my biggest disappointment. Uh, one, I mean, this isn't my biggest disappointment, but when when Quincy and I produced the Oscars, which we were told by the Academy and the president of the Academy was they thought the best Academy Awards cast in ten or twenty years, and uh, that night of of of, of the uh, Academy Awards, which they supposedly wasn't something they normally did. They not only at the Governor's Ball, which was right there in the Music Center downtown, uh, you know, said very nice things, which I'm sure they say every year, even if the show is good or bad, but that they were inviting us to come back and do the show again. Uh, and, you know, because of my my deal with Time Warner, I couldn't really do the show again. I really wanted to do it one more time and sort of get to get it as close to perfect as, as possible. But we, we did have a lot of fun doing that one. Your proudest moment professionally. Hmm. Well, probably my proudest moment is Quincy and I, we were very close to the Clinton Gore white house. And so one time we were, we were in the, um, this is going to sound like I'm name dropping, but we're in the oval office late at night on a weeknight. You've already been with the Pope. I mean, come right. on, this is nothing. Um, and a good Pope. Uh, and uh, we're with this guy, Mac McClarty, who was chief of staff at the time. This is the first year of Clinton, bad year for Clinton. You know, many missteps with the whole, you know, Medicare situation, and everything else, healthcare. And um, he's, you know, they're saying we got to do something to sort of like win back public favor. So we've come up with this idea. This is them to us uh, with this thing. We're going to call it the summit of the Americas. It's going to be the biggest thing of your lifetime. And uh, we want you to do the big event. Would you produce the big event? Cause we'd already done the inaugural, which I must say was from what I've seen the best inaugural that there's ever been including since then. So we said yes. And we produced this thing called the concert of the Americas. We had 35 or 36 countries there. I had tons of Cubans, because remember, my wife's from, from the Caribbean, so there are relatives from all these countries, put together the greatest salsa band that, that has ever performed in history, you know, with Cachao and Sandoval and Tito Puente and, and uh, you name it, they, they, were, they, they were there. And, and at the end of it, because, you know, when you're partners with Quincy, he's always the big star, because he's a star. But Clinton, when he thanked in front of all the, the heads of state of every country was there, the most security I've ever dealt with, because we had the security, the equivalent of the Secret Service of 36 countries to deal with. And I had to do that. I had this book and a guy following me and guys with, you know, guns. And we had all these escape plans and everything uh, because there were threats from, you know, the Cuba and others were going to shut this thing down, which was interesting. So after it, the event is about to end and Clinton comes out there and he says, I just want to tell you that this is the shining moment of the shining moment of my, you know, this is now, this is December of 94 uh, of my administration, you know, the first two years and a turning point. And I, this, it, it wouldn't be possible. And he does the normal sort of kudos thing, but it's from him. 
And he does this long, long thing. And in my head, I'm expecting him to say, you know, all these things. And he did this and he did that. And these things went bad. We had a power, we had a blackout and this and that. And he says, David Salzman, I want David Salzman. You're hiding backstage. I know I want you to come out and take a bow. That was a big deal to me. And then he then said the same thing with Quincy because it was the only time that I sort of, you know, came first. It was, it meant a lot to me because my wife is from that country. I have friends, you know, from Cuba and all these other places, uh, you know, and it was nice. Oh, that's beautiful. All right. Last question. Two part question. You've seen a lot of talent, actors, actresses, writers, comedians, showrunners, guys with hefty trash can bags with Alf inside. You've seen many executives, young executives starting, coming up. What advice do you have for the young artist who's struggling, trying to figure out how to get to the next level to get to be on television, become a, a relevant uh, person in film and television and media? And then secondly, what advice do you have for the young executive the young person who wants to be in this business in some way and wants to work themselves up in the business to someday become at the level that you are today. Or hopefully higher, but, uh, and better, uh, and certainly richer. I, I, you know, if I go back there, I obviously passed up some opportunities to make a little more money than I have. Um, I would say the advice would be, these are sort of seem like cliche mottos, but the boy scout thing, I was a boy scout, be prepared. I would say um, dream big and always believe in yourself. Uh, never give up and uh, you know, listen to your heart more than you listen to what so-called experts tell you, especially the, the haters and the naysayers because they're always going to outnumber you. That's sort of my advice. And if actually if you live by those simple precepts, um, uh, you'll have the perseverance, the self-belief, the tenacity, the sense of purpose and a vision of where, cause you, if you don't know where you, where, where you want to end up, you, you know, you're not going to get there. So you have to sort of have a vision of this is where I want to get to have a plan of how I might get there and realize that, you know, 90% of the, the plays in life are going to be called from the line of scrimmage. So even though you have a plan, don't think you're going to be sticking with the plan, you know, be flexible just be tough. Tenacity wins in the end. Wow. Well, you know something, David Salzman? You win in the end. Thank you. And because you came here, our audience wins in the end. And I'm very grateful that you came here. Thank you so, so much for coming. I appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. As always, uh, this is Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, please tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show... Tell all your friends. <laughs> they say it's the glory. I'll scream your name. Put you on shoulders. Walk you to fame. You get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going for 
Life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain. It's never quite over. Till it all feels the same. You pick your own poison. Dig your own grave. Down in the valley. A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.